how great it is to be here gathered for worship. Uh, would you pray with me and ask God to bless our preaching? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. And so Merry Christmas. I hope it was a great one. It is always great to see you, and especially on the Sunday after Christmas. I tell you what, that's awesome. And as we get going today, I wanted to declare the fact that I believe we're all made to worship. The question isn't if we will worship. Rather, the question is what will we worship? Now, before uh, early on in, in my ideas of idolatry and worshiping other things, I always thought that worshiping something rather than God had to be nefariously evil. I consider the Old Testament where they worshipped a calf made out of gold or Baal and Asherah. And so usually if you're worshipping something else, it's always evil. Until I read a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. It's a book that I would really recommend uh, because how it shaped my idea of what I could be worshipping. Before I read this book, I wasn't running after the nefariously evil things of this world, as you might imagine. I was a pastor and tried to keep myself from those things. However, what he made the point of is that usually what we're drawn to worship rather than God are really good things. In fact, consider this quote from the book. The greater the good, the more likely we can expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and desires. You, maybe like me, would probably agree that if it's really evil, we, we don't expect it to satisfy, not in our heart of hearts. But when we find something good, we might be more likely to pin our hopes on that. And, and so that's what we find. We, we see the good of a career, of helping people, of uh, providing for the family, of, of making a difference in the lives of other people. And because there's some good there, we are tempted to run headlong into it and just be consumed by a career kids. I don't know your opinion, but I'm of the opinion they're good things. They take a lot of work and their responsibility, but they truly are a reward. And because they're such a reward, and we see this very clearly, it's easy to say, well, my kids, they're worth it. I'm just going to rush headlong in giving them everything I couldn't and making sure they, 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 they have everything they need. And as long as I do everything for my kids, I'm actually making the next generation better. I'm actually helping the world. I'm going to just pursue my kids. You know, it's interesting, when, when I considered the good that I might be tempted to pursue, I, I really thought it was a good thing. When, when, when I considered this, do you know what I was tempted to make as my counterfeit God? Ministry. Serving Jesus. Proclaiming the name of Jesus. And, and would you agree that that's a good thing? I think so. But it definitely is something that would be the nearest to being my counterfeit God, to, to rush headlong into only that. And, and, and where it crosses the line from being a good thing to potentially a God-stealer thing is when it exceeds our proper boundaries. When, when you're doing so much for that thing that you can't do the other things in life, when you exceed your proper boundaries. Another test that the book gave, uh, maybe more relatable, is this. A counterfeit God is something so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Now, if you can answer that, whatever that thing is, that if it was taken away today, that very thing has the potential to be what you worship 
over God. This whole idea reminded me of account with Abraham. Do you remember uh, the test that Abraham was given? So let's just revisit a little bit. Abraham was given the promise of a child. He waited 25 years to have Isaac. He was 100 years old and, and was raising him. You can imagine how expectant he was to have a child. Imagine his hopes and dreams and love for this child, and maybe even more. Uh, beyond that, it was promised that through this child, all nations would be blessed. Because it was such a great gift, God said, give it back. And, and we know his test. He uh, went to a mountain and he was told to sacrifice Isaac and, and that was the test. And, and this is not because our God wants child sacrifice, but this is because our God tests the heart a lot because he loves us. And he passed the test. He proved to himself and to God that he was willing to worship God above all things over what was maybe his biggest temptation in the world. You know, Paul spoke about what we could worship. He's the one who told us we were worshipers. And there's really only two categories that we can worship. Look at this passage. It says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. And so you know the categories of worship? You can either worship the creator or created things. That's the first takeaway. You can either worship God above all or something that God made. And you look at history, and, and that's always been the case. Yes, historically, maybe they worshiped the sun or a cow or, or fertility or whatever. Today, we might worship um, passion points, influencers, um, uh, Social progress, medical progress, people. Um, but it's always either a created thing or the creator. But the reason this is so important, and, and perhaps maybe even the most important from our series, is because if we don't get this right, boy, will we be missing peace. If right now you are truly worshiping above God something that he created, Boy, will you lead to be disillusioned when that good thing can never do and be what God only can. And so today, we have the opportunity to consider what it is to worship God and what that looks like. And I'm so excited to get into God's word for us. Uh, we're going to learn from the Magi who came to worship Jesus and it's interesting that we don't even know the names of some of the best worshipers. Uh, I always love to explore some of the myths around the Magi. Um, and it's all because of that song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Have you heard the song? Raise your hand if we've heard. So let's just explore that. We don't know if there were three. They brought three gifts. It, all, it only says that there were uh, Magi, so plural. Uh, what we also know, they're not kings. Uh, they're, they're wise men, um, you know. So again, they studied the stars. They're, they're, they're not necessarily kings. Uh, Orient. Um, most likely they came from uh, modern-day Iraq, uh, Babylon, Persia, uh, probably not Asia. In fact, there's speculation that while Daniel was in exile, uh, maybe he was the influence for the wise people of that age to try to seek the Lord uh, through astrology, which we knew. That, that's conjecture, but uh, a possibility. Uh, another, and perhaps the most important, he's not there in the barn when Jesus is in the manger, Okay? So if you have a nativity set, as you can see, we are theologically correct. The wise men aren't here, okay? Um, if you want to hide something, better than elf on the shelf is where the magi are, 
right? You can put them in the kitchen. You can put them anywhere else, but not at the nativity scene. They're not there, friends, for what it's worth. Uh, but with all the myths now expelled, uh, what we do learn from them is how to worship. So let's get into it uh, from Luke, or sorry, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And that is a flat-out lie. <laughs> what we'll explore is that because they didn't report to him, uh, we know of something called the uh, uh, Massacre of the Innocents. He killed every child to and under um, because they didn't report. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen rose, went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. By the way, house, not manger, not barn. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. These are the words that we get to consider. May God bless our time in his word. How are Americans doing in their worship of God? Better than ever before? It's interesting that in this series, I, I explored the idea that because of COVID, uh, many churches have had to uh, put gospel content online. And what a wonderful thing that is in, in order to make sure that many people from many different places can hear the Lord, even if they can't be in a building. What a wonderful thing. And yet, I was reading an article that said how we're doing in general. I don't mean to pick on anyone in particular. But how we're doing in general? Here was a statement. The statement from the article I was reading, while an encouraging number of Americans reported that the pandemic strengthened their faith, they were the minority. Uh, they reported that statistically they followed those who were worshiping before and now have opportunity online, and about 50% tune in from that, that category. 50% were lost. They also reported that in-person worship attendance, as far as the church goes in general, is down 30 to 50% since the pandemic. How are we doing? And what's really interesting is that um, it's been more accessible than ever. And, and me, like you, have enjoyed that. Me, like you, have enjoyed being on my couch with a cup of coffee and some cozy uh, socks and, and enjoying great gospel content. But, but my question is then, why, because it's so accessible, haven't it, it gone to an increase of worship? Why haven't more people then tuned in and gotten more than ever? I have a theory. That's from our lesson. Something that struck me about this lesson is when Herod wanted to know 
where the child would be born. And when Herod wanted to know, and he went to the religious people, the the high priests and the scribes, here was the response. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For, this is what the prophet was written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, a few things strike me about this. They knew where to go. It wasn't like strange Bob who sometimes gets it right is like, I think Bethlehem, and everyone's like, I don't know about you, Bob. No, they all knew Bethlehem was it. Number two, they, (laughs) it wasn't just one person. It was the collection of religious people, the religious leaders at the time, all together knew this. And number three, the ones who had pinned their hope on the Messiah, who, who knew this was a promise of the Messiah, who were waiting and expecting and hoping that this might come true. The ones who had such hope and lived by these promises were not willing to travel five miles, which is a day's journey on a hunch, that it might be true. The Magi most likely traveled over 600 miles to follow this star. Every other religious leader didn't travel five to go and see if this was true. You know what I find? We're tempted to take for granted what's easily accessible. Isn't that true? I I was uh, reading about differences between uh, what's common in Europe and common in the United States. And I guess in Europe, uh, they don't have as much access to peanut butter or it's more expensive uh, and so sometimes when they come to America, they look at our pantries and they get just like, wow, look at the jiffy, right? And it's just interesting to me and it's laughable because I've never gone to someone's pantry, said, wow, look at that tub of jiffy and be like, you're really making it. But in the States, we're used to peanut butter, right? And we take for granted what's easily accessible. Isn't that true about the people in our life? At one moment or another, has anyone else been guilty of taking for granted their parents, their guardians, the access that you have to them, their willingness to to hear their voice and and to talk, that that they want you around? I consider this for for so many different categories. Uh, If it's provision to take for granted, whoever is providing whatever you have, uh, whoever the the worker is, whether it be uh, comfort and and someone's positivity and the the way they say things, uh, whatever we've been accustomed to rely on, we easily take for granted. So now we turn back to worship. I'm not saying that we should make worship more difficult. I was thinking about this, and like, maybe I should go over to the houses with small children, give them a lot of sugar, and really rile them out so, you know, be difficult for parents to come. I'm not sure that's the goal, right? Or like, make like an obstacle course, you know, in the parking lot, see if you can get in today. Not helpful, right? But what we should not miss, what I think is very relevant, is that if you have access to the gospel, that is always evidence of grace, If you have a Bible at home, if you have people who can explain the Bible to you, if you have a very clear word from God, you should be thanking the Lord. Would you track history with me for a moment? 
From about 500 to 1500 A.D., from the end of the Roman Empire to the 1500s, you had to rely on a priest to interpret the Bible because the Bible was either in Greek, Hebrew, or Latin. There was one person you could turn to, one person's voice, because you couldn't hear from a lot of priests. You were local. It's not like they had the internet. And you were hoping that this priest knew his stuff. You were hoping that what he was translating, what he was telling you, that, that he was getting it right. And as we know historically, they weren't always. I consider the pioneering age of the United States of America. When people were settling this country, there were uh, pastors called circuit riders. You know what that was? It is a pastor who had many congregations very spread apart uh, that they had to visit. And it was very tough to be a pastor in that age because you had to travel so hard. And, and, and sometimes you'd be lucky if you got a, a visit once a month, once a quarter, that you could come and receive communion and have answers to your questions and have the Word of God explained by a theologian. Even talking to Pastor Jeff, his experience in Africa is very much similar to that pioneering age where uh, there, there were many congregations that only got pastoral visits um, you know, quarterly or monthly. It, it wasn't every week reliability. Can you imagine if that was us? Imagine if, like the Magi, the closest place to hear a theologian speak on God was 600 miles away. Wow. What grace is ours to have access to the gospel? And so moving on and learning from the Magi, what I find is that as they do the work, um, I believe they find that worshiping God is worth it. And it still relates today. I know it's accessible, but it's still work. I know you still have to clear busy schedules to get here. I know sometimes getting the kids here are a problem. I know that this has led to spouses arguing. I know the intensity, and the devil will throw everything at you and the kitchen sink to prevent you from being here. I know, but what I'm telling you, it's always worth the work. Have you learned that about anything else in life? It's interesting, as I look back at um, jobs I've had and schools I've been in, there are certain jobs that stick out and certain classes that stick out for various reasons. For example, um, when I worked drywall and framing, I remember so many of those work days. I remember almost what I was doing every hour. Do you know why? It was hard. I am not gifted with my hands, friends. So to be in a drywall and framing environment, it took everything I got every day, and those memories are seared in my mind. I remember classes in college where I'd have to study two hours before every class in order to get a passable grade. I got to tell you, I still remember some of the things I was studying. While other classes have escaped my mind completely, I still remember uh, studying for 1 Corinthians uh, under Professor Frederick, great guy, by the way, um, and, and all of that stuck because I had to do the work. Can you relate to this? The things that you really spent yourself on, they kind of stick with you. In fact, the, the way I put it is that what you put into something is what you usually get out of something. And that's true if you've ever done a workout. If you've ever worked out, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. That's true in the kitchen. If you're a cook, if you love to bake, if you love to cook, if you spent the whole day doing that, what you put into it, like they're going to taste the love, aren't they? 
It's what you get out of it. And so the Magi teach us about worship. And what they teach us is this. If we intensely seek the Lord, I believe we'll be intensely blessed. And I believe that because I've heard from many Christians in a season of intensity. And many Christians, it usually took a, a period of suffering for them to intensely seek the Lord. It's usually the correlation. But as they prayed, as they were in devotion, as they craved to hear a word from the Lord because the pain was so intense, it, it is that very season that brought radical change. That God worked with that intensity, not in spite of it, to make a change. You know, I think there's a chance for us to test these theories. I remember growing up, and, and uh, I used to get lessons, I had a lot of Lutheran school, about what was to prepare for worship. But I'm not sure how many still hear what it is to prepare for worship. So I just wanted to like, what if we just applied this intensity to worship? So, so this is what I think it looked like. What if you really thought the highlight of the week was here on Sunday morning? And that led to Saturday night you go to bed early because you needed energy to seek the Lord. That led to your praying for worship the night before because you're praying that those worship leaders would speak a word from God. You're praying that the music would be edifying. You're praying that you'd be fully present. What if when you got there, you rooted out all distractions? No one would keep you from seeing Jesus. It didn't matter what was distracting you. I was going to be laser focused on just hearing from God what I needed. What if when you praise God, you gave everything you got and you you didn't care what other people thought about you because your soul just needed release and you realized that this was your moment of praise. What if when you came to a church, you weren't just part of it, you weren't just taking it in, but you were building it because you knew this was your voice to God. This wasn't just a congregation that you consumed. This was something you were a part of to bring praise to God. What if that happened? I think you'd be blessed. I think as you put stuff into it, you would get more out of it. And God would deliver over and over and over again. And so the Magi, they put in so much work, and you know what the result was? Did you see the passage when the star finally stopped? They put in so much work, and the culmination of that work when they saw the star, they rejoiced with overwhelming joy. What's the result of the work? Overwhelming joy. I don't think it would have been the same if on a hunch they traveled five miles to maybe see the Messiah. But because they traveled 600 miles and stayed there next month to go see Jesus. <laughs> wow. In fact, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible. Let me explain why. As a scholar of the Bible, the Holy Spirit never wastes words. You need to know that. He never wastes ink. He always uses those words on purpose. And yet this is a passage with the most redundancy that I've ever seen. In the Greek, it's interesting because you could have just said they rejoiced and that would have been one verb. He could have just said they rejoiced with joy. That's two words. But you know the literal translation? This is so fun in the Greek. The Holy Spirit inspired it to say they rejoiced, not just with joy, but with great joy, and then they put an adverb on there just in case you missed it, exceedingly. I've never run across a more superfluous, more redundant passage in the whole of the Bible. And what the Holy Spirit, I think, is trying to tell you, they were geeked out. 
Nothing else came close to the joy they had on seeing Jesus. There was no greater joy. This is a picture of heaven. This is when you rightly see who God is, and it just takes hold of you. There's no greater joy possible. And why? Because they had staked the claim to see him. I simply believe what you put in is what you get out. Some people have seasons, and I've been in those seasons, where it seems like my relationship with Jesus is running dry, and I just politely ask you, what work are you putting in? Are you in devotion? Are you fervently praying to him? Some people have looked at the church and said, you know, I've gone to many churches, and it just seems like I'm fed up. I can't get anything from anywhere, and I got to ask you, what work are you putting in? Are you there making it better? Are you trying to eliminate the distractions so that you hear the voice of God? Are you putting in the work of worship? Some people are wondering, does God really make true on his promises? Will he really follow through on everything that he said? What work are you putting in? Are you testing him on those promises? Are you following his ways to see whether or not he comes through for you? It's a great opportunity. And we learn from the Magi. But there's more we learn. And to talk about this, uh, something that I know is that when you love someone, you give, don't you? And some parents just had that moment. I'll never forget one of our moments with the girls. We went to this store. No grown adult man likes this store. (laughs) I mean, if you do, please tell me. (laughs) I'd like to meet you. But why do you go there? And why do they kind of look at you with the sympathy, we're sorry you're here? Because you love your girls, right? You love them. And you want to give them all the good things because that's what love does. In fact, we had an event at Amazing Love a week ago because um, there was an event for special needs kids that was canceled. And they're like, it can't be canceled. We're going to hold it on. And, and so our admin, Heather, and some moms, they got together and they made sure that this, this event for special needs kids would continue on because that's what love does. Love gives. It always wants to give. In fact, that's the household I grew up in. I I praise God for good parents, and I know it's the grace of God. I'm not worthy of it, but I thank it. And and I had a parent who said, you know, I'd give you the world if I could. And then they tried to prove it, so I believed them. Because love gives, right? That's what it does. In fact, um, you could probably test your counterfeit God. What what are you giving best to? That's another test. Because what the Magi prove is what they want to give out of worship. And so it says they opened treasures, not leftovers, treasures. And they presented them with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, you might get the gold, but let me explain frankincense and myrrh. Do you know perfume can be really expensive? Especially when it's well done. Uh, my wife and I recently learned about this perfume called Krigler or Kriegler. I don't know how to pronounce it even. Um, and we heard the salesperson um, say that it takes like how many pounds of flowers to make one candle. Like uh, the, the, the work involved in creating this essence is just incredible. And that's why the candle is like $300. Like, we didn't buy it. Anyway. Um, but, but perfume can be really expensive, right? And so frankincense and myrrh, these, these were treasures. Uh, frankincense and myrrh, they're, they're tree rosin. They come from tree and they, they smell fantastic. Um, and, and gold, of course. And and they were so valuable that the commentators say the reason uh, that Joseph and Mary were able to live on in Egypt is because they had these treasures. And that was the provision that God provided for them to have enough in Egypt. Uh, just some conjecture there. Um, 
But this is what worship does. And what the Magi teach us is this, that a true heart of worship desires to give the very best. And that's why I love this church. Because it's conversations I've had with you. Do you know one of our core values at Amazing Love is bringing our best. And on almost every level, we've had those conversations, whether it be with technology, thank you guys, or, or music, or kids' ministry. It's why we serve Fleckensteins and Intelligentsia. Uh, it's why whatever we do, we're trying to run after our best. Because God is worthy. You know, it's really cool, too. I uh, didn't expect this, but we planned a really aggressive financial year in calling Pastor Jeff, and God is still blessing us. Thank you for working and worshiping with me and bringing best. It's so fun to run after that. Not because God is needy, but because he's worthy. But before we go, there's something that can stand in the way of all of this. The Magi teach us what worship looks like, but there's something we're all going to have to wrestle with. And Herod leads us to understand what that is. When you looked at Herod, look at his response. When he heard about a king of kings, it says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And why was he troubled? Why did he kill all the babies who could be possible contenders? Because he didn't want another king. He wanted to be king. What's the biggest thing that stands in the way of our worship? It's the mini Herod in my heart. And that mini Herod's ruthless. That mini Herod wants to do what he wants to do regardless of what anyone thinks, even God. That mini Herod doesn't want to give, he wants to get. Because he deserves it. And that mini Herod needs to go. He's a part of my sinful nature. He's a part I don't like. He, he brings nothing good. He brings pain for everyone around. And if you can relate to that mini Herod in your heart, here's how you throw a coup. You look at what the king of king offers. You know what I love about the king of kings? There's absolutely nothing that he asks you to do that he doesn't, hasn't done a thousandfold. So he might prompt you in worship. See how far you can go in order to worship me. But how far did he go for you? We see it clearly at Christmas. This is the God who left heaven and came to earth. This is a God who would do even more as he went from cross to grave. You will never go as far as he went for you. What about the gifts we sang about him. We, we think about what we could give God. I bet Jesus, if he could, he'd probably want to take all the flowers in the world, put it in a perfume, and say, he, would this be good enough? I'd like to do that instead of the other. But he shed his blood. And he gave us his body. He died. To say that no one gives more, no one will ever give more than I've given to you. One of the reasons that he belongs and has to be the king of kings is all that he's done for you and I. What's also so great about this invitation to worship the creator, the king of kings, he's inviting you to avoid disappointment. 
He is inviting you to not waste your life on a lesser thing. He is inviting you not to get so disenfranchised about all your hopes and dreams. Because if we live as if we were mini Herod, the only problem with that is that we don't make good kings. I'm not a good one. I get it wrong. I hurt people. I'm confused. I don't always know what to do. The other created things that we could pin our hopes on, they're not good gods. They can't give to you. They can't come through for you in the way that only he can. And so when he is the one we worship, when it's the king of kings that we're always listening to, he can guide you. The king of kings never wants anyone to hurt, not you or anyone else. The king of kings will be there with his unfailing love and can truly satisfy. And so worship this king, not because a pastor told you to and not because it's an obligation. No, worship the king because he's the only one worthy. And may he satisfy. On every level that you bring that intensity, may he bring you intense blessing and the comfort of his love. And may you worship him with the rest of your life. Amen.